This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you were born, I spoke to you in Farsi almost naturally. Looking back now, you know, it was quite a pretty special thing because not having people to speak your mother tongue with was hard on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the only regret I've got when it comes to raising you guys. Yeah. Kia ora, we're your hosts, Julie and Sarade. We travelled around Aotearoa with our soundie Joey meeting immigrant Fano, listening to stories and discovering what is said or not said between different generations. These stories warmed our hearts and broke our hearts. And over this series, we invite you two to listen in on conversations with my immigrant parents. Welcome back to the first episode of Series 3 of Conversations with My Immigrant Parents. We're back. We're back. <laughs> in this episode, we're in Tūranga Nuiakiwa with Adele and Maxine, their two kids, Carmel and Hami, and their cat, Gagush. In the conversation is Dad, Adele, who is Iranian, Mum, Maxine, who is Samoan Chinese Māori, and daughter, Carmel. The family lived in Tamaki, Makoto for many years, but moved to Gisborne just before the first COVID lockdown of 2020, and now they live in Kaiti. Ko Tainui, ko Hirotana Waka, ko Taupere, ko Pukamori More, ko Tisirangi Ngamonga, ko Waikato, ko Uawa Ngawa, ko Waikato, ko Taitanga Hawati, ko Natiira Ngawi, ko Natihawa, ko Nati Wewehi, ko Nati Koruki, ko Nati Kahu, ko Nati Mahanga. Ko Nati Mahuta Ngahapu, no Tūranganuia Kiwa O, ko Kamau Aroha Salmanzare Aho. My parents are Maxine Chan Salmanzare and my dad is Ado Salmanzare. So my dad was born in Tehran, Iran, and he was there until he was 15 years old, and then kind of after that, he and his brother had to escape Iran. They lived in Pakistan for two years and my dad's been living in New Zealand for over 30 years now. And then my mum, her father migrated from Samoa. His father came from China. And my mum's mum, her mother was from Uwawa. My dad's, like, very artistic and creative Everything he does, he kind of just does in a creative way. My mum's a lot more practical, but then also, like, my mum's creative, so I don't know. I think they both balance each other out. Carmel Aroha Salmanzade. I remember when I gave birth to her, 
she looked up at me and that was it. She held like this gaze and I thought, oh, that's a bit scary. <laughs> How she looked me in the eye and I was like, you're my mum and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, when I think about Carmel, I think she's taught us a lot about life as well. She has this perspective that's full of wisdom. She's very articulate, but of course, she's quite strong with her views about things she believes in. In 1979, the Iranian revolution happened. It was increasing the persecutions of the members of the Baha'i faith, and it really changed our life. My dad was presented with either converting to Islam and keeping his job or remaining a Baha'i and losing his job. So that was the beginning of things not being the way it was for us before the revolution. It didn't leave any choice for my parents other than sending us overseas. At the time, there was thousands of Baha'is leaving through the borders with the help of people smugglers. And I remember we had passed the border with the camel. Into Pakistan. Into Pakistan. We were thrown in the back of a ute, covered up. We were given local costumes. And I remember the car stopped. We were anxious too, so why the car Mm. stopped? And the smuggler came and said, do you want a Coke or a Fanta? (laughs) And I remember just being able to see there was absolutely no houses, no trees, nothing. For miles, it was just like desert. Oh, my god! But there was this kiosk in the middle of nowhere that had cold Fanta and Coke. And it was cold. Cold. So because they had ice, you know, they had put it in the ice. But it was almost like for thousands of dollars you had given them to smugglers. (laughs) And you have, haven't been any food, you haven't yeah. had much to drink, you haven't had anything to eat for days. There's a cold Fanta just being opened up and being passed on <laughs> to you, you know. And oh, my gosh, I feel like they would use that as, like, a commercial. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> so that Fanta tasted incredible, amazing. I still, <laughs> I still have a, I sometimes buy Fanta to remember wow, that moment. Wow, we should have Fanta with dinner tonight. I feel like that's going to be a vibe. Like we have to get Fanta tonight. Yeah, we had a unique situation where I had an older dad who realistically couldn't make it through the border, you know. Grandma came with us through that journey, stayed with us for a few months, uh, registered us with the United Nations, and out of the thousands that escaped from Iran to Pakistan and gone to the countries... There was only maybe a few who actually did the return trip, and she was one of those people. I think it makes me cry every time, even when I, like, just think about, like, myself. And sometimes when I'm, like, telling people about how you came here and stuff, it makes me cry. I remember being, like, 15 and thinking about it. I was like, imagine if I had to... if I had to leave you guys, like, at that time. And I remember, like... You know, I get to 16 and I was thinking, you know, I had one more year with my parents that you didn't have. 
And then, like, when I got to 17 and then at 18, I was like, oh, there's a few more years that I've had with you guys that you didn't get to have with your parents and with your dad, you know, where you're from. Now being, like, almost 20, you know, I just feel so lucky that I have you guys. And... Like, don't mean to make it about me, but it's just like the only way I can, mm. like, kind of relate to your story because it's so different from like the kind of privileges that I've had in my life is so different from the things that you had to go through. Big decisions and big, yeah. big things that you know ordinary families don't have to face. You know that you have to send your children away. Yeah, like, I'm moving back to Auckland where I have family and friends that I've known my whole life, but you were, like, <laughs> you went to Lower Hut, like, you know. Like, you ended up in Lower Hut. Yeah, and, you know, just even Harmy's, like, turning 17 soon, or, like, the beginning of next year. And It's good to be reminded. It's good to talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's good to think about, you know, especially when you're, mad at your dad (laughs) yeah I remember like as a kid like whenever I was like angry at dad or anything or like like yelling at him stuff I'm like oh my god your dad's a refugee you're like yelling at your refugee dad (laughs) yeah (laughs) like he's already had it hard enough (laughs) yeah yeah you never did it intentionally it's just what you were going through and yeah I think that's kind of interesting actually like you never made me feel like you know, your life, your situation. Like, I couldn't live in my own struggle. Like, not that I was struggling, but, you know, there was things I was going through and I would, like, think is your fault or I never felt like I couldn't complain about things. No, they were real for you. You see, I didn't have that as a 15-year-old, 16-, 17-year-old. Then you're going through a hard time to talk to anyone, to be in a position for your child to go through a hard time made me feel uh, useful that I'm there for you, even mm. though I didn't have my parents to, you know, mm. take my issues to. So your ability to feel like you could even be really upset and emotional and for me to experience that, that was really, um, it was like having a normal experience. I wanted you to have a normal experience mm. because mm. my experience wasn't normal, yeah. Mm. There's such a big difference in experience in childhood and teenagehood between father and daughter here, mm. but there's still so much understanding on both sides. Mm. It feels really healthy. Mm. Mm. I really like that his approach to parenting is almost like wanting rebellious kids. Like, he's so grateful that they didn't have to go through that traumatic experience that he mm. did. So he loves when they're, like, just like a quote-unquote normal teenager. There's almost like a trope that immigrant refugee parents come here to want and make a better life for their kids. And I really appreciate that. Part of that is wanting your kids to live kind of guilt-free. They don't need to Mm -hmm. hold on to that trauma that you had. So because Adele's mother had to make the difficult choice to go back to Iran to take care of Adele's father... Adele and his brother spent two years in Pakistan with only each other and arrived in Aotearoa in the late 80s as two teenage boys alone again in another new country. 
In this next part, Ardell starts off remembering what it was like finding out New Zealand would accept him and his older brother as refugees. I still have the letter <laughs> from New Zealand Immigration Service. Mm. And the letter was, you have been accepted to New Zealand and you can enter New Zealand from any time from the state, you know. That was life-changing because for two years we were in complete limbo. And I remember seeing the, the old school Air New Zealand logo, logo yeah. on the wing of the plane. Mm. And I never forget that color, you know, that mm. teal color and that logo is like, actually, I, I love the old one. I don't know what they turn it to black for, but that, that brings back <laughs> such a strong memory yeah. of... I kind of associated that Air New Zealand logo to freedom. Didn't sunken how far we are from everything until we arrived. And there was still excitement in the refugee centre for six weeks in Mangaret. Yeah, yeah. There was a sense of excitement, you know. And you were 17. I was 17. And And was that your, like, second trip in an airplane? Uh, yeah, yeah. Second time so was escape was yeah. like escape escaping was around the, part of it. To get to the border was the, my first time in a plane. Yeah. And my second time was getting out of mm. Pakistan, Pakistan and arriving here. Yeah. By 1990, really started sinking in, oh my God, we are yeah. so far from Everything. anyone we know, Yeah. from our parents. Yeah. And we had no passport. You yeah, see, we couldn't even travel. Trapped. Yeah, I think those early days, I think... Must have been really tough. Being bullied at school was really hard, you know. Yeah. Not speaking the language, not having parents. I think maybe I was 23, 24 when I really felt, okay, I know where I'm at. I know who I am to some extent. And I was on... Ministry of Youth Affairs at the time is called, I was on their advisory as a representing refugees. This opportunity came to go to Japan to represent New Zealand as some Asia Pacific Youth Forum. I was one of the six delegates and I, I had a passport <laughs> so I could go. Probably that's why I got the passport, maybe, my first big trip. And I remember arriving in Japan and being treated with so much respect and so much support and Japanese were like, treat me exactly the same as the, the, as the Maori delegate, as the Pakia delegate, we were all treated the same, you know? And I remember I had a, such a wonderful time for like a couple of months in Japan, I really loved it. And then I came back, I arrived back in New Zealand and I saw my six fellow delegates just one by one, Walk through uh, customs. Walk through problems. customs. You know, I could see the embracing their families and, you know, like leaving the airport gates in Wellington. I was approached to um, go to a, a room because they needed to ask me some questions. My, you know, delegation leader is like coming to them and saying, oh, he's with us, you know, he's, mm. he's got a New Zealand passport and it's mid-90s. So this is pre-September the 11th, but there was still a lot of sort of certain attitude towards Middle Easterns and, mm. you know, a bit of... Suspicion. Suspicion and stuff. And I remember being questioned about my passport and really? I, and sitting in that room, a small room, a couple of border officers sort of asking me, you know, tell us how you got the passport, when did you come here and all of those things. and. What? 
And I remember one of them saying that, you know, your name comes up in, you know, as someone that we need to talk to or, or you, you know, they, they were making excuses. And, mm. and I remember just telling them, look, I've just gone to Japan. I'm a New Zealander. I've got a passport. And that's my delegation leader. He can confirm that I was with them. And this is my background. I came as a refugee. And none of those really mattered to them. Wow. And for two hours... I still have a mental image of how each delegate member had couldn't wait for me anymore, even though they felt quite concerned mm. about why he's been held back. Mm. And one by one, they had to leave. And then the delegation leader said, look, I will contact the ministry and I'll see if I can sort something out. And... Yeah. And... Uh, I had left my car, so a friend had driven my car to to pick me up. Yeah. And he was pacing back and forth. You know, he didn't know what to do, and he was there. And so it, it just carried on, and it became this two-hour thing. Mm. And I was like, I couldn't even speak. I was so yeah. stunned, like, this is, really, hap- this is yeah. really happening to me, you know. I mean, so humiliating. And... So I got into the car and I was like, I couldn't talk to my friend, you know. And mm. I remember he wanted to get me home because I just saw, oh, you know, just get me home. I can't really talk. But I was sobbing. Mm. Um, yeah. Was it Wellington in the airport? Yeah. It was. Uh... All the way from Wellington to Petoni, where I lived, I was just uncontrollably. Yeah. Mm just crying, sobbing, and uh, and he was like, um, yeah, I think that that was the moment, that was actually, it was a, it, it was a moment in, in many different sort of, re- for many different reasons, it was an important moment, because it was like, for the first time, I really experienced prejudice. Yeah. What I experienced in Iran as a religious minority didn't faze me. I could still get up, be proud of who I was. For the first time, I thought my look, my name, regardless of how much I've done in the past five, six years, my education is just really nothing mattered. Mm. All it mattered that what I looked like, what I sounded like, my name. I was just another Middle Eastern who've been sort of racially profiled. It took me many, many months before I could trust New Zealand and system, you know, yeah. and New Zealanders. And Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened. Uh, yeah, so obviously still very raw. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since we heard it. And I think you can completely hear how big of an impact it has Mm. had on Adele, that he remembers it so vividly. Like, decades later, you see the image of those people leaving one by one Mm -hmm. as he describes it. Mm -hmm. It's like Adele just got dropped into this other version of racism that is so prevalent here, which is that if you're other, you're part of a total wash And I can see why that's so gross and upsetting. 
And I guess interesting also how he compares it to persecution in Iran and why this felt worse, because I guess you're sold the story that New Zealand has such good race relations, it's such a safe place to be, and this was a moment where it really wasn't. And the fact that he really saw New Zealand as this symbol of freedom at one point in his life, and then to have that betrayal, really... So Carmela Maxine had somewhat similar experiences in that they both grew up with immigrant dads. Maxine starts off this next part remembering what it was like being from a Samoan Chinese Māori family. Just a warning, this section contains some offensive language. Growing up in your own family, that's your norm. Mm. So my norm was Grandma too being Māori and Dad being Samoan Chinese. That was my norm. Mm. So that's what I thought. Every family was like that. You know, when I think about you and Dad, there's so many similarities like between me and my dad too because we see things more than we realise as Kiwi, the dominant culture is kind of like so ingrained because it's the majority, for me anyway, when I was growing up. I feel like I really don't identify with Kiwi. Yeah. I don't know why it makes me like, it's just like gross or something. Like it's just, I feel like Kiwis are... Yeah. Māori word, but it doesn't yeah. feel Māori to me. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's been real, like, colonised. Like, I only ever hear Pākehā say, you know, yeah. we're Kiwi or, like... Yeah. Or new migrants because they want to be. Or because, like, Pākehā say to them, oh, you're, yeah. you're a Kiwi you're too. You're a Kiwi, yeah. When Dad came over, it was the end of the 60s and there was a lot of prejudice towards Pacific Islanders mm. and... That was a big thing for my dad. Like, he just wanted to get on with things, mm. speak English really well. Because a couple of things I do remember really clearly were, like, really sad. Like, mm. go to the pub to have a drink, mm. and the next thing you know, you're in a fight because mm. somebody called you a bonga or a coconut or told you to go home because you were getting yeah. targeted yeah. for being not only an islander, but, look, you know, looking like mm. a Chinese islander. <laughs> yeah. Did you notice that? Like, that there were people... Māori, first of all, who were tongues whenua, like from this mm. land, mm. treated differently and then also just other brown people from neighbouring islands. Right from get-go I, I started sensing that there was divisions and disparities. The more and more I looked into it, well, racism was right at the core of it. Would you know? say colonisation too? Colonisation followed by racism... And it was that kind of thing that I felt like, yeah, I really, really felt that this lack of understanding about the impact of colonization in this country by general population. Mm. And it was like, oh, we've dealt with it. We've moved on, you know. I think, yeah, obviously you always knew I was Māori, but I don't really remember, like, fully... I knew you were Māori. ...thinking about it as much as I do now. Yeah. Or, like, but when I was starting high school... And I was choosing a language. I think I had chosen, like, Spanish, then French or something like that. Yeah, and I remember I was and trying then, to tell you, please choose Māori or some yeah, well, yeah, your languages. You <laughs> and I think it was good hearing it from you, but yeah. I remember Dad also saying to yeah. you, you know, supporting that. M- Māori should be your first choice. Like, obviously, you know, Mum would support it, but, like, you know, having you who's, like, not Māori. As a Toivi dad, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility, really, that I've benefited from this country in 
all kinds of ways. People from refugee backgrounds come here and really enjoy everything that New Zealand has to offer without understanding, well, some do, but many don't, that actually we have an indigenous population here who are still challenged by a system where they're struggling in education, health, mm-hmm. housing. If you think about colonization as an earthquake that really caused so much upheaval for Maori, we live in Kaiti, which is like the epicenter. Yeah, literally where James Cook like landed. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like, I think also for mum, it's really special because for the first time ever living in a place where we're actually like from, because I know... No. I might never be able to go to, like, Iran, mm. which is, like, half of me. Mm. Even moving here has made me feel more connected to, like, Iran in a weird way <laughs> because it's, like, the first time being somewhere where you're really from and then so it's just, like, can kind of imagine, like, what would it feel like if we lived in Iran? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Like, if I use the analogy of for 35 years I've been in a, in a pot plant... I've been this little little tree, little pomegranate tree in a pot plant that's gone from the one house to another house. <laughs> and for the first time, I feel like I've actually taken the little pomegranate tree and I've planted it in, <laughs> in, in, in this so house in Kaiti. And I kind of feel like, oh, the, the, got the roots. roots. we got roots here. Yeah. I just love that image. It's such a great image. <laughs> And for Kamel, as someone who is both tangata whenua, but also someone from a refugee background, like having both an inherent belonging to this whenua while being displaced from another place, like I think that's such an interesting juxtaposition that Mm. people don't consider a lot maybe when, Mm. from both those communities, I guess, but special that she feels like she can find a new sense of connection to Iran, even just being back closer to her whakapapa in Tūranga. I felt like such a sense of loss Mm. that I will never experience being in the place that I'm from in that way. Mm. I think that being around people who are really honouring themselves and their whakapapa in the way they talk and the way they eat, the way they dress, the way they love, makes me feel like I have the courage to do it too. Mm. Like it's easy to be around people like that because you feel like you can bring your whole self to the table as well. Yeah, yeah, I love that. In this next part, we hear about how Maxine and Adele met. So we met at the refugee centre. Romantic. <laughs> but mum doesn't remember. I don't me, remember so. meeting Dad. But I remember her, which is... <laughs> and I, I remember. But do you actually remember seeing mum? Like, actually I remember actually seeing remember. her? actually remember. Dad says that. Yeah. And I had amazing hair. I definitely looked across and made a mental note that I'm going to meet this girl again. Yeah. In fact, without exaggerating, I remember saying, oh, I want to marry someone like her, you know. I had no English, so there was... <laughs> so how did you say it in Farsi? In my head, I would say something like, uh, you know, Zane Hamsar, your Zane Ayande man. Yeah, I'm saying she's But it's all in my head. <laughs> Mental note. Mental note. dialogue. And then we lost touch. uh, We never been in touch. (laughs) (laughs) It was all in your mind. We never been in touch to lose touch. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that was the and, that was and, the song. You can't touch. And this. I remember, I remember, <laughs> yeah, it was a, there was this pamphlet about the Baha'i faith, and then I opened it up, <laughs> and then oh, here she is, you know. There were no Facebook or social media or emails no Insta, or nothing. No Snapchat. The only way to find out no Twitter. where someone's at, yeah. like, I knew that she was a Baha'i. Yeah. So I, I wrote to our national office, which they have everyone's name and numbers. Oh, my God. I, I said, oh, I'd like to have this person's number and, you know. And, and I they gave it to This was before the privacy policy the kicked in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they gave, oh, my gosh. Yeah, there was a couple of other people, too, that I wanted to get in touch with. But, of course, the excuse was. Get you know, in touch with them the same way you wanted to get in touch with mom? No, no. <laughs> But, I add, <laughs> but if I added two more names to it, it wouldn't have become obvious that oh, I just right. wanted to get to Oh, yes, you saw the, the pamphlet yeah. and you got her contact. So then I get this letter from this person I'd never heard of before, <laughs> and I remember thinking, hmm, who is this person? And I was a little bit suspicious, to be honest. I had as many Persian friends as I needed, so I didn't want to have another Persian. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I would file that letter. <laughs> no, I just thought, oh. Fireplace. And honestly, it was in those days people wrote to each other. So if you can get your head around <laughs> that, it was like pen friends kind of stuff. And we probably have like a good 100 letters or so between us, which is quite lovely. When the time comes that we finally actually meet face to face, it was really special. We had written so much by then that we've already, like, we were... Probably we really knew really each, knew other. each other. Yeah. Uh, and nice. then I asked her to, to, like, you know... Would you consider marrying together, me? You know? Sort of thing. In yeah. that same trip? Same trip. First date. First official date. And three months later we were married. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents were just granted. Something really amazing happened. With the persecution of the Baha'is, we were not allowed to have passports. Mm. Around mid-90s, they relaxed the rules and they let older Baha'is mm. over the age of 70 to get passports. Mm. You know, they felt sorry for them, said so they want to go and see their families. And it's so kind on. of like a PR kind of exercise. So like we're not Look how time really we are. keeping the Baha'is from Yeah, seeing we're not stopping Baha'is leaving, but yeah. they were, but this was... One way of showing. Yeah. That was really amazing. So that happened in 1997 mm. that we applied for my parents to get visitors' visas. Mm. That so. was a six months visitors' mm. visa. We squeezed in. Everything. We squeezed in, deciding to get a lot of married, celebrations, engagement, mm. graduation, and then getting married in September the 26th of the same year. So that six months was just full on. Yeah. yeah. But on top of that, Grandpa was really sick. But I remember my mom saying that from the time you guys left Iran, mm. he just prayed just to see us one more time. One more time. He never prayed that, oh, I want to move to New Zealand and be with my kids. He just said, I want to see my kids mm. and then I'm, I'm happy to mm. leave this earth. September, October 1998, we had to say goodbye to them, you know. Mm. Was there, like, no way they could have just stayed, like, being able to apply for something? Because they come on a visitor's visa oh. and they had to go back. The conversation came up, of course, you mm. know. My dad was adamant that he doesn't want to die in a strange country. Yeah. Mm. I would have liked him to pass away here 
it would have been really nice to take you guys somewhere for his anniversary. You go to his great, you know, that would have been nice for us, but for him, and it turned out also for my mom because my mom didn't want to move here. And having his gravesite in Iran has been a, a source of comfort for her. Yeah. When you are a refugee and your loved ones die one by one, you can really feel down. You can really feel um, disconnected. Yeah. But I think having that belief that they are, it's just a bodies have have passed on but the spirit is all around you it really helps to get through life as a refugee for mm. me as someone who's you know displaced yeah mm. i can imagine that'd be really sad not to go to your own dad's funeral oh yeah that's really actually probably took me a good 10 years yeah not as diff I think. Because it was a relief, his passing. Oh, yeah. I mean, his death, his uh, release, being released from the suffering was like a a joyful thing. Mm. But not being there to support your mom. Help my mom. Help him even just physically, yeah. I think those are the things that it's hard to ever fully heal from it. Yeah, I think the sadness is for him not to see you guys, see you guys meet you guys, and yeah. he he would be so proud, and that would have given him a lot of joy. Yeah, when I think about his struggles, I think even mom and I getting married, that was like a that was a source of uh, achievement or healing for him for all the suffering because we didn't see each other, you know, from ninety. 87 to... 98. 98. So that was a good, I don't know, um, 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. 10, 11 years of not seeing your only kids. When you were born, I spoke to him Farsi almost naturally, you know. I was doing my master's at the time and I had a lot of time. uh, Looking back now, you know, it was quite a really special thing because not having people to speak your mother tongue with uh, was hard on a daily basis. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, that's probably the only regret I've got when it comes to raising you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to make you feel bad about it sometimes. Not um, not continuing. Yeah. Yeah, remember how I always used to tell you to speak fussy with kids? (laughs) I mean, I think at some point I was just wanted to talk to you guys. Yeah. Yeah. And just, it was harder to switch. Eh? Yeah, yeah. It was Between just like, just wanted to talk. And mm. I've never said, oh, we have to hang out with Persians or Samoans or Maori. Mm. We have all kinds of people coming through and friends. And I was happy to just sort of be a Persian, but not our life becomes about being Persian and the language and the culture. Mm-hmm. We took all the good, you know. All He's the been good. saving it up for now, so we just hear Persian music, like, 24-7. <laughs> yeah. Which is really nice, though. It's really cute. Like, you just listening. We name our cat Gugush. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cute, though. I yeah. like it. But it's funny because, like, I give you a hard time about not, speaking Farsi to us enough, but, like, whenever people say, oh, why doesn't your dad speak Farsi? Like, why didn't he teach you and stuff? I'd get so defensive and be like, 
I think it's so rude, like, because, you know, people don't really take into consideration, like, our situation, like, you know, mum doesn't speak Farsi fluently. (laughs) She speaks more than me, but, you know, it's just, like, it's, it's hard. Unfortunately... It's hard to do justice with someone, yeah. Farsi and Maori. I said it would be very challenging, mm. but you got to go with the one that's really nurture you and you have community around you. And I think naturally it's the real Maori, mm. isn't it? Yeah, like I understand that because I live here, it's important to me to mm. speak Maori. Yeah. But I think also I really want to be able to understand Persian Farsi. Because, yeah, and, you know, yeah, half of my family is Persian. So mm. there's so many things I wish I could talk about with grandma. And I know it's not your fault, but it, yeah, it's just sometimes yeah. it's hard for me because I feel really connected to her because mm. we share the same faith. I'm learning kind of the same thing she learned, but mm. in a different language. It would be so nice instead of like getting you to get translate. Get a second hand and yeah, with I the bits just, that you miss out. She could just tell me. Yeah. And... As you go through life, I felt I had to sacrifice. You can meet new personal goals and new legacies. It's mm. never too late. Like I've got a very clear vision of speaking Farsi to your kids. Oh, have I? Just let it out, Dad. Get it out. Don't try to suck it up. I also imagine that too, so that'd be really nice. <laughs> there's some regret, there's some uh, sense of this empty feeling. And I think the more you continue with your Tereo journey, you, you'll satisfy some of that feeling of emptiness. But as Māori, you have responsibility to contribute to your people. Right. Mm. If you lived in Iran, you would have a responsibility to contribute to Iranian people. This loneliness that Adele expresses, I just really feel for that. Mm. Language isn't just like the words we say, mm. is it? There's so much involved in a specific Culture language. And community as well. Yeah, yeah. And to, to not be able to share that with your child, I can see how that would be really devastating. I also just really love how deeply emotional the whole podcast recording was and I love mm. that they sit in their emotions as a family and just let let that flow. Maxine encouraging that too. Just let it out. Really so nice to hear. So Adele used to work more in social and community-based work with refugee and migrant communities, but he's also always been an artist and the entire family is really creative too. And Kamal is about to move back to Tamaki to start at art school. In this next part, Adele talks about how he felt like he had to put his art on hold when he was younger. For someone who was always saw myself as an artist, there was no way I was going to own a house in a time that I wanted to and have the financial resources as a refugee to have a comfortable life. I didn't give up everything, but I did give up art or a life in art over um, financial security. Mm. I think at least in the past two or three years, you've really grown as an artist. And it gives me a lot of joy that you don't have to think about what I was thinking about. At 20, the goal was to get some education and get a job, right? And you're 20 now. 
Almost. Really. And the goal. And I'm like, maybe I'll go to art school. <laughs> maybe I'll. <laughs> and and if, if you told me you want to do this degree because you want to have a job in five years, deep down inside, knowing you are an artist, I would be feeling really disappointed <laughs> in my. No I pressure. Wouldn't tell you, yeah. but I'll be disappointed that, oh, she's basically doing what I did. Yeah. And I wasn't happy, like, mm. doing it, you know. So your yeah your journey in art is almost like makes up for what 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 I couldn't do, mm. but you wow came up to there's that no point. pressure. No, no, you came. You decided to go to art school again, loving through you. Yeah, uh, you came to us and say, oh, "I want to study like yeah. international something or law or something." Yeah. And, but you also like art. Yeah. You like film. You want to pursue mm. your Māori studies. You, so like, yeah. you yeah. like film and script writing. So we actually, at that point, you came yeah. to us. I basically said, you're not going to enjoy law. I can tell you now. <laughs> I was very <laughs> clear that you're not going to enjoy it. I knew you can yeah. do it. It's funny because, I mean, like maybe I could have done it, but I think the reason why I was drawn to it was because of the work that you did yeah. with refugees and migrants and... Now that you're 19, you could still do law. Yeah, mum really wants me yeah. to do Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was about what pathway we're going to use mm. and to advocate for people that we mm. want to advocate because you're not doing art because you want to satisfy your sort of ego. and mm. You want to do it to serve humanity. And you really story. showed me that because you'd be doing maybe giving a talk or something at the refugee centre, like, but then you would also be just, like, Include selling art. prints for, like, a fundraiser for, like, a, yeah. a refugee family or, you know, what happened with the, the shooting at the mosque and things mm. like that. So I think I always saw that the way that you used art in that kind of social... Spaces. Spa- yeah. Those spaces. Because, like, I feel like I've only really discovered the art world in like the past year because I've like started to work with people and spend time with people who are like involved with that. But my idea of like being an artist was you. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. I feel like my heart grew when I heard Kamal say that. I also really like what Adele says about we use our tools and we use the pathway that we can to advocate for people. It's like we need all of it. We need the artists doing that. We need the community and social workers doing that. Mm. We just need that from all facets. And what we are doing here in the podcast is a form of that as well. We are from migrant backgrounds Mm. and these are the sort of stories we want to hear. And that is true. But also this is directly a response to white supremacy and the problems that we see here and the way that we are trying to contribute to the conversation is just by shifting focus, right? Home has always been where your dad is for me. (laughs) Actually, that makes sense because when, like, people, like, ask me about you guys, like, separately, I always think of you guys the same. And I don't know if it's just because, like, when I came into this world, you guys were together. I can't imagine you guys as, like, separate people, like, living without each other sort of thing. We've kind of had a bit of a nomad, sort of displaced, unsettled feeling mm. all through my life mm. as a refugee and beyond. So I totally agree with Mom. It's like wherever she is, whenever I am, that's that's home. We will never 
impose our concept of home on you. But deep down inside, we, we do like you guys to be close. As a small family, there's that dream of being together again at some point and make somewhere home. Mm. Could be here, it could be somewhere else. Yeah, that's, that's home for me, really. I had never been to Gisborne until we visited that first time, like a few months before we moved. I think purely because you guys were here, I felt home. But then also because I know that I fuck a papa here, like mm. I felt home in that way too. Yeah, I don't know if I found exactly the place, where, like the physical place where it's like home. I imagine I'd like to live somewhere that my kids can go to like a kura kaupapa or something. Mm. That's what I would really like to do. But yeah, uh, who knows? I don't know, but I feel at home here. What a great way to start our third season. Incredible. So much emotion, such beautiful storytelling. And we just want to say thank you so much to the family for not only sharing your stories and your time with us, but also having us stay for three whole nights. Cooking us <laughs> beautiful Persian food. Gugush sat on Julie's lap for like a whole night, which really hurt me. <laughs> thank you for teaching us to make art prints that we got to take home. We had such a great experience, so... You can check out photos and videos of all our families on Facebook at Where Are You From Really, on Instagram at Convos With My, online at tahi.fm or rnz.co.nz forward slash conversations, or follow the podcast on all major podcast providers. Conversations with My Immigrant Parents was created, produced, and directed by Julie Tu and Saray De Silva. If you wish, you can follow us at Saray De Silva or at Julie Tu with two U's. Location recording by Joey Siasoko, sound post production by Emmy Pagoni, music composed and produced by Tal, Shantani, and Shalina Sandrin, and videos are edited by Josh Young. Our cover image is illustrated by Nga Mutani Jones and designed by Sonia Milford. A big mihi also to Tim Burnell and Jody Huani from RNZ Commissioning. Conversations with my immigrant parents was made possible with the support of New Zealand On Air. He ipurangi material irirangi o Aotearoa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.